Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible founder. I mean, he's done it so many times that if I told you the number, you know, you'll probably get dizzy. I mean, eight times, you know, that he's built companies is really remarkable. And, and many of them, you know, super successful companies and companies that you're going to be recognizing, you know, when you hear them on the show. You know, again, we're going to be talking about uh, first mover advantage. We're going to be talking about dealing with a post-closing, you know, after you sell your company, what happens when there is a mismatch with a company that is buying you. Uh, we're also going to be talking about crowdfunding as well. Uh, and uh, and again, you know, like you're going to find this incredible and very remarkable, his journey. So without further ado, I don't want to make you all wait any longer. Let's welcome our guest today, Brad Pillow. Welcome to the show. Oh, Andrew, so good to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. So, so Brad, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was being born and raised in Montana? <laughs> Montana is beautiful. They call it big sky country, and it's where I go to disconnect, kick off my shoes, and uh, and and return to my roots. But yeah, I I call myself a Montanan. Uh, went to um, school, college in Utah, Brigham Young University. Um, but before I even hit the college scene, I had already uh, founded my first company. And where, where where does this like insane drive for entrepreneurship come from? I mean, it's it's, it's really unbelievable. That's a good question. And I've asked myself that question. I think uh, true entrepreneurs are born with a defective gene. Let's just face it. Not everyone is born to be an entrepreneur. Um, and, and while I think you can learn entrepreneurial skills and people who have the gene certainly should develop it. Um, but I, 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 I would attribute it to two things when, as I thought about it. One is um, my mother, who uh, from a very young age read me, not Dr. Seuss, but read me biographies of, of builders, uh, business builders, nation builders. So from a very young age, I came to look up to the men and women who created things, number one. And number two, frankly, was necessity. Um, I was raised in a large family. I had eight sisters, and my father was a school teacher. And when I was nine years old, I think, uh, we had a family meeting, and Dad said, Brad, you need to uh, buy your own school clothes, pay for your own school lunch. If you need a bike, you go earn the money for it. And so I took that seriously and immediately started, you know, taking on jobs. And by the time I was 15, I created a fully incorporated company um, that, uh, you know, a few months later was featured in the New York Times. Uh, actually, my story as a teenage entrepreneur, and it was the first time I even heard the word entrepreneur. I, could, I, I, I didn't even know how to pronounce it. And a gentleman showed up at my doorstep. I was then in high school, um, living in Utah, actually, at the time. And a stranger on my doorstep handed me the New York Times. I had never seen a New York Times in my life. And he handed it to me and he said he had been on a trip and he picked up this uh, newspaper and, and read this article about me and wanted to meet me. So he found found me in his local community and delivered that paper. And, and I opened it up and what is an entrepreneur even? So 
that was my introduction to entrepreneurship and I think kind of my origin as to my drive for it. Wow. Now, in your case, you went to college. And while in college, you actually founded another company. And this actually was one that ended up, you know, having a nice outcome. What were you guys doing there? Uh, this this was at the beginning of the PC revolution, right? So, you know, the original Apple IIs and uh, later Macintoshes and IBM PCs. And um, I had a friend who was kind of fixated on on what we would think of today as just Google, the ability to search massive amounts of information uh, from a computer. But we were limited to floppy disks in those days. Uh, few of us had a hard drive of any sort, and if we did, it might be five megabytes. Um, so we began to develop a full-text search engine in college, and out of that grew a company called Folio. And Folio's premise was with the advent of the CD-ROM, which came just a year or two after that, that you could put 500 megabytes of data on a CD-ROM. And, and, and yet, what good is 500 megabytes of data if you can't search through it and use it as a resource? So we introduced into the market the idea of just a, a digital book or a digital library. Um, and we worked primarily with... Um, uh, reference publishers. You could think of it as law publishers, regulatory publishers, governments, um, large insurance institutions, anyone that had a lot of text, a lot of policy, a lot of opinion that they need to distribute. Uh, and instead of using a book, you could pop in a CD-ROM and quickly search uh, for the content you're after. And that business really kind of blew up for us because uh, we were the first to offer a search engine even though it was limited to just the CD-ROM at the time. And, um, and eventually began to compete with, with what was then kind of the dominant online uh, search engine, a company called LexisNexis. And, and they, uh, at the time, were delivering their, full, their search engine capabilities through private networks to businesses. So you actually had to get a dedicated T1 line. They had custom terminals. Uh, and you actually, when you went to law school, for example, you took classes on how to learn the syntax of searching LexisNexis. So it's very proprietary. And we were kind of coming at them from the side saying, all you need to do is buy a CD-ROM, pop it in any PC and search away. So uh, it, it was very disruptive to their business. And in the end, they ended up acquiring us uh, seven years after our founding. And, and I moved my family and joined them. Uh, in in trying to turn a legacy business into a future business for them. How old were you at this point? Uh, at that point, I would have been 29. Hey, not bad for a seven-figure exit. Now, in this case, it ended up being not what you had hoped for. You know, once the uh, company was acquired, the integration happens, and you all of a sudden, you know, start to blend in with the culture, and you found that there was a mismatch. What happened there? Well, the, the culture wasn't so much of a mismatch as, as it was that we realized once we got on the other side of the transaction that this company saw us less as an opportunity to catapult the entire industry um, into open standards-based search and retrieval, but instead uh, we're, we're looking at preserving their business. So quick story that kind of represents that moment for me was 
uh, in the first 90 days of joining the company, they asked me to come to Ohio, their corporate headquarters, and to participate in a three-day executive retreat. They had hired a, a big consulting company, you know the names of the big consulting companies, to do a study on the future of search engines and full-text retrieval services for professionals. And this retreat was meant to have the consultant present their findings and for the executive teams to kind of talk about what that means to our five-year plan as a business. And I sat there for those three days and realized I don't share the, the worldview of either the consultant or the people sitting around me. Um, everything they're talking about seems very incremental to me. I do not think they, they think the Internet's a thing. And again, this was pre-Mosaic, so it wasn't actually much of a thing. But, but for a startup guy, young guy who saw the world through the lens of disruption, I realized that's not how they saw the world. They were an old legacy company, and they were simply looking uh, at the world as to how long can we last doing this and incrementally growing. So here's what happened. You know, I was a millionaire. I didn't need this job. And I certainly didn't want to be stuck in a dinosaur company that wasn't going to be disruptive and innovate. And so on the flight back to my home in Utah, um, I penned a fictional press release. Um, and I wrote it in a way that, you know, it, it would be believable, I thought. And it was a press, a joint press release between AT&T and Microsoft. And it, it described an announcement wherein they were saying AT&T is going to deliver uh, commercial-grade connectivity to businesses at large, didn't require the proprietary lines that, that LexisNexis had been using. And Microsoft was announcing um, what we now think of as a browser. It was sort of an, an, an open service that would allow you to connect to any searchable data content via this AT&T network. Um, so it was taking the two key components that were proprietary to LexisNexis, and it was saying, these are going to be available to everybody. So I wrote that press release, and upon my, my arrival back to my office in Utah, um, I printed out the press release and just put it on my co-founder's desk. Uh, he was on another trip. And when he came back a few days later, he came into me and he said, did you see this draft press release from AT&T and Microsoft? And it, it hadn't quite registered to me what he was talking about. And I said, uh, what do you mean? He said, well, these guys are going to completely disrupt our new parent company, LexisNexis. And, and then I thought, well, wait a minute. Kurt actually thinks this is a real press release. And, and, and so I said, no, actually, I wrote that press release. That, that isn't a real one. And, and then I told him my story, how I'd written it out of frustration. But in that moment, I thought, you know what? Let's pretend this is a real press release. So I actually doctored up my document and put logos on the top, put a big stamp that said draft. I faxed it to myself from a friend at Microsoft who was supposedly leaking it to me, a former college roommate, to look completely authentic. And I then sent that to my new boss, LexisNexis in Ohio via fax, and said, hey, Bruce, just want you to have a heads up. That whole study we just finished didn't anticipate this move. Um, and within an hour, he called me back and, and he said, oh, thank you for sending this fax. You are absolutely right. Our new study didn't anticipate this. Are you okay if I fly out to Utah and spend a day or two with you and Kurt? And let's talk about what our answer to this will be. Because 
the draft had a date on it. It was still a couple of weeks out. And he thought, let's get our story together. So he flew out. We didn't tell him it was fake. And for a whole day, we sat in the conference room and we drafted up what I believed would be the strategy when the internet actually happens and when browsers actually are launched. And at the end of the day, it was nine o'clock at night. He was leaning back in his chair, just saying, thank you. I think you saved my job uh, because had this press release gone out, we would have been caught flat footed. But I'm going to go back now to the CEO and I'm going to present this new information. So as he's getting ready to go to his hotel, I said, Bruce, before you go, I just want you to know one thing. I wrote that press release. It's fake. Um, and it, that didn't compute for him. And, and he, he said, what do you mean? And I said, and then I told him, you know, I've been frustrated by the process you've been running. I ran my own process, you and I, and we lived in a moment of reality. Um, and, and he was stunned. He, he, I'm not a liar and I don't want to be, but I full bull face lied for a day about what was going on. And he said at the end of about a five minute period of silence, he said, you are fired. I just cannot even believe I flew out here for, you know, a trick like this. Um, and I said, that's fine. I knew that was a risk for me and I'm willing to take it And And as uh, we got up to, to leave the room for the night, he stopped me and he said, you know, actually, no, you, you did the right thing. It was courageous. I wouldn't have done it myself, but I think you're right. I think we're not thinking as we should. And so let's go do this same prank within the organization. And so the very next day, he and I flew back to the corporate headquarters. We faxed ahead the press release to the CEO. We said, can we meet with you right away when we get into town? He met with us. We didn't take him through a, a one-day scenario. It was like one hour of living in this uh, press release reality. And at the end of the experience, we told him it was an exercise. And he was upset. That, that was going to be a common theme as we do this. No one likes to be upset, you know, deceived. But at the end of the hour, he said, we need to do this throughout the organization. And so for the next two weeks, um, I went department by department throughout this organization uh, running into staff meetings with breaking news, a leaked press release, and watching the organization react to that. And the result was I then was asked to lead the effort to move LexisNexis to the Internet, um, uh, to open systems uh, over the next couple of years. So, so that's an experience of when you get married as a founder into a new parent company, uh, what's it going to take to make sure that your visions are aligned? And I know that's an unusual story, but that was mine. That's incredible. Now, after this experience, you ended up being part of the early days of Ancestry.com, you know, a company that was recently acquired for $4.7 You were there, the CEO and a founding member during the first, uh, you know, early days. How, how was it like there? Well, uh, I, I came out of the LexisNexis experience where that business was built on a lot of public domain data. I had a brother-in-law who, who was my co-founder at Ancestry. There were a couple other gentlemen as well, but, but Paul Allen is his name. And he, he called me up uh, in Ohio and he said, um, I really think this uh, family history genealogy thing could be another emerging area on the Internet. And uh, and so I started to talk to him about what could be done with pu public domain data. 
One of the very first things that we acquired was what's called the Social Security Death Index in the United States. So it's everybody who died who had a Social Security number. And for $75, you could buy the entire database on big computer tapes. So we bought it and we uploaded it on a server. Um, I negotiated the acquisition of a publishing company called Ancestry Publishing. And it had a long legacy of kind of being the leading publisher to genealogists. So they had a magazine, they had reference books. We took their reference books, digitized them, put them on servers. And uh, in no time, we began outpacing uh, pornography servers as the early adopters for uh, internet usage, people searching out their ancestry. Um, I was only there for the formative stage, um, six, the first six months. And, uh, and I, I myself, uh, while part of that genesis effort, decided that family history wasn't really my passion at the time. And uh, the dynamics of, of working with a family member um, weren't something that I enjoyed so much. I preferred him as my brother than I did my partner. And so we decided to part ways six months later, and I went and acquired a media company uh, at the time uh, and, and transitioned out of that business. But no, proud to have been a part of those early days, but certainly wouldn't take credit for the company that they've become. Well, eventually you um, obviously bought and, and ran that media company, but one of the companies that you ended up founding too, you know, was a next page which ended up merging and, and the result is Proofpoint, which is valued at over 10 billion today. What, what were you guys doing there? Well, this is right during the height of um, the dot-com bubble, we think of it historically, but where billions of dollars were being invested into everything internet. And because of my early experience with Folio, I became a believer that, uh, and, and Google had just begun to emerge, but I became a believer that that there would need to be cloud-based services that businesses would use to manage internal information, uh, to search through their own servers for documents um, and, and email archives, et cetera. And so we raised a bunch of, of money from uh, venture capitalists, you know, the likes of uh, Oak uh, out of Connecticut was our lead VC, but uh, we had, Silicon Valley VCs with us in the round as well. We raised $60 million and kind of went at it when, uh, with a big team, we did what everyone else was doing. We were spending money like crazy in the race to, to the internet. And then the bubble happened. And we were fortunate to still be sitting on cash. I think we had about $20 million in cash left over at that point. But we also knew, based on the implosion, that um, it was going to be a longer road to a sustainable business. And, and so one of the things that became clear is that we didn't know when capital would be available again in the private market from VCs. And we also didn't have customers yet for our new product. And so we, we took an interesting tack. Yes, there had to be some downsizing to bring costs under control so we could preserve cash. But we asked ourselves, who's the natural customer for this product and might we pre-sell our solution to them. So we approached several big companies that were kind of knowledge worker focused companies because we, we figured they'd be the early adopters. They had the most data serving it, sitting on their servers. And um, McKinsey, the big uh, consulting giant, 
they became our first customer and we didn't even have a product. We had a concept. So we pitched them on the concept and then uh, pledged that we would build it if they would commit to being our first customer, which was in and of itself a big deal uh, because that first transaction then would be a multi-million dollar annual license that um, that we felt like if we if we got them to take delivery, then there would be many more people just like them who wanted that same product, and they would be a great reference client. So for the next uh, year plus, actually, it took us more than a year to build out the product, but we used them as sort of the spec. Um, not we weren't building it in contracting fashion where. You know, they created the requirements documents and we simply fulfilled their needs. No, we generalized it. We made something that can be used by a lot of people, um, but we made sure it would meet their needs. And in that process, we were able to deliver a final product to them that they not only paid for, but continued to pay for, served as our reference customer, and and that business took off. And, uh, and, and just a couple of years after that was, uh, we, we merged with Proofpoint, who was a little larger than us, but about like sized as pre IPO. And, and then Proofpoint went public, uh, with us together. I don't know what that's been 15 years ago now or something, but long time ago. And now is a thriving business. Um, so, so my, my lesson learned there, and I've, I've shared this with other entrepreneurs is we talk about MVPs but uh, as in terms of product development, but, but we ought to also think of the minimally viable customer in that process and the possibility of matching those two up very, very early, essentially with the customer as sponsor. Um, so it, it was a save the company move and, and uh, also allows you to have product market fit right out of the gate. Uh, especially if you're good at translating customer need to something that is more generally appealing to a broader market. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone it's super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. 
Now, the, the next uh, rodeo that you did was with i.tv. And uh, my question there for you is, what, what did you learn there about first mover advantage? So uh, uh, this, this is an interesting story because I, I had uh, envisioned that one day we would have digital devices, digital flat screen devices, something that we would think of as an iPad or iPhone today. Um, and I, I had in mind the visual image of that very, very early on, long before they existed as devices. And I mocked one up and uh, digitally mocked one up and saved it as my wallpaper on my computer. Um, so every time I opened my computer, I was re reminded of this future device. And, I, and, and it sort of begged the question, what would you do with a device like that? Um, and I began working with some engineers in stealth mode, uh, specking out to build the physical device because none existed at the time. The closest thing to it would have been like digital picture frames that had started to emerge, but um, nothing that was a smart device. So we began specking out with, in, with the thought that we would build that. But we also began thinking about the services that a customer would use on that device. And so we were specking that out at the same time. And I was actually in Las Vegas at the CES show, um, kind of looking for potential OEM devices or something that we might piggyback off of when Steve Jobs on that same day, first day at CES, announced the iPhone. And, uh, and I tuned into the announcement. I went back to my hotel just to watch his announcement. And I never returned to the, to the show floor at CES. I was so taken by what he was announcing that I immediately knew we had to pivot. We had to move from building a device to building out the services. And one of the services that we had identified uh, were what we would think of today as media delivery services. So we, we built, our, in its first instance, a digital television guide. Uh, and when i.tv launched as an app, when the App Store first opened at Apple, um, we were you know, featured multiple times by Apple on their on their storefront page. Uh, they they promoted us in the press. They, they made us fans of their their conferences. And 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 yet, what we were experiencing was the advantage of kind of being first on a platform and first with the concept. It sort of opened the eyes of people. Of well, if I if I have um, a directory, essentially, a TV guide on my phone. Why can't I watch these shows from my phone? Um, and so then we began partnering with uh, what were then the laggards, uh, even though they were emerging companies themselves. So it was Netflix. We, we convinced them to let us integrate into their API. At the time, they weren't streaming anything. It was all a disk-based service. But you could you could be in our app and i.tv, see a show on television, click on it, it would tell you where it was playing on your local service provider, say Comcast, but it would all also say add to my Netflix queue. And you could just click on that and it would integrate into the Netflix system and send you the disc if you wanted. Uh, the next integration we did was with TiVo uh, and, and the VCR company. And and similar idea. They didn't have an app, but we integrated into our service the ability for you to say, record that show or send me a reminder about that show. 
Um, and we essentially had a remote control then for your TiVo. Uh, we, we partnered with uh, movietickets.com to integrate ticket purchasing into the system for events. Um, and then we started getting calls from the TV providers themselves, uh, Direct TV and Time Warner Cable and Comcast. And, um, and we started providing kind of white label solutions to the market based on what became a service in the end, the services business. Um, and then when Twitter and other things kind of blew up around television, we, we became what was thought of as the second screen of television. The idea that you could be watching the Super Bowl and at the same time synchronized on your screen uh, were advertisements and uh, stats and replays around the show. So that business was eventually acquired by DirecTV, uh, which took me to New York City for a few years. But um, at the end of the day, the lesson learned was, and, and again, I preach this to fellow entrepreneurs all the time, if you hold too tightly to your idea without looking at that idea as as an opportunity to super serve a customer, then you might hold on to your your own means to creating that solution rather than simply thinking, how can I participate in solving the problem? So had I kind of stayed the course and built a digital device, uh, it would have been a total failure uh, because we know how ubiquitous our smart devices have become. But when I pivoted into the services business so I could deliver a customer solution to those devices, I became a first mover entrant and used that first position to then go overserve other people who needed to become partners eventually in that ecosystem. And then the next one up is Say. The next one up is Say. What was the lesson learned with Say? The lesson learned was get out of New York City during COVID. <laughs> I, say, say was a, actually a short-lived uh, business. I um, Say would be today what we think of as uh, apps like Marco Polo, asynchronous video chat. And uh, I built that company in New York City and then ended up merging uh, just pre-pandemic with another company called Radiant. Um, and Radiant was more of a digital studio. And so uh, instead of using the asynchronous video as a private messaging service like Marco Polo, we're envis envisioning it being an asynchronous platform for influencers and for um, luminaries, celebrities, et cetera. And so uh, that business was just sort of emerging at the time COVID hit. And even though it would have been a perfect time for remote workers, um, it, uh, it, it, it wasn't ready for prime time. And the parent company that I merged with decided to stop investing because the other properties they owned in the media space were television and radio that were being significantly impacted by ad dollars at the time. And they just said, we're not going to keep investing. So the, the, the story there is actually what happens when it all goes wrong. Uh, because that was the circumstance I was in. I, even though I'd been paid in the merger, gratefully up front, with some good cash, I now found myself without a business to build and, and without customers to serve in the middle of the pandemic. So we left Manhattan, went out west where we, we could be closer to some of our family. And it was there while literally working on 25 acres of land out by Park City, Utah that I owned 
that uh, I was introduced to Dallas Jenkins, who's the creator of a television show called The Chosen. And um, he and I started talking about ways that I could potentially serve in, in helping him with his business, which was growing out of a television show that had been crowdfunded. So back to your question, Alejandro, you know, what's the lesson from Say? The, the, that lesson would be not only about, you know, the startup antics, but, you know, when it all went bad, when it all didn't work out, um, you know, just be available for something. I call it the grace of God, but, you know, something that I can apply myself to, I can give my gifts to, and that became the chosen. So obviously at the time of The Chosen, you know, you were now, you know, with the experience of three feature f films, seven years of the uh, telecast. So The Chosen. So tell us, what are you guys doing at The Chosen? The Chosen is really interesting. Let's go back to the my experience at NextPage slash Proofpoint. It was find that customer and use that customer, uh, uh, super serve him in such a way that he not only finances your business, but when you deliver the product to him, he becomes your advocate. And that is the story of The Chosen. The Chosen as a TV series um, did not have a studio to back it. It's, it's the story of Jesus, actually. And you'd say, well, that story has been told a thousand times, which is true, but never has it been told in a multi-season TV series, something that's going to spread out over seven seasons, cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make. And you're not going to find a cable channel, a streaming service, at least in that day, that was going to underwrite a project like that. And yet, Dallas Jenkins believed there was an underserved market. There was a market of people who wanted that story told in a, in a modern way, using modern film techniques and amazing actors and the storytelling structure that we were used to and other great hit television dramas that had never been done. And so he went directly to the audience. He produced a, a short film uh, that demonstrated his storytelling technique, and he put that out on YouTube. And then he just started hitting the socials and saying, watch this short. If you would like to see a TV series made just like this using this storytelling technique, then join me, help, help me fund this. And uh, within about a six to nine month period, he had raised over $10 million, largest crowdfunding project in history uh, around any media property. So $10 million to fund season one of this show. And, and then he took those funds, made the season, turned right, right back around to those customers who were begging for that product And he delivered. And, and guess who became an army of advocates? Those 16,000 people, not because they were wanting a return on their investment, even though I'm sure some of them did, but because he had fulfilled the, the promise. Uh, his customer promise to them is, I, if, you, if you will buy it, I will give it. And he did. And now that show is in its fourth season. We just wrapped filming season four. I now serve as president of The Chosen. And, um, and that has been entirely funded by the audience, entirely. Now, this, over the budgets, you know, the first season was $10 million, The second season was eight. Third was $25 million, The fourth was $40 million. So you add all that up, 
you know, that's $100 million that has come from the audience to simply say, keep providing this product to me. So we're in the unique position now that, you know, we, we don't have exclusivities to studios and to networks. We have a product that we can deliver directly to the customer, which is extremely unique. So talk to us about the, um, for the scope and size, you know, what's the audience and the reach and, you know, anything that you can, you know, share with us ar ar around that? Yeah. Well, as of today, when we're recording this podcast, The Chosen is the number one television show on Amazon Prime. Um, it's It's been in the top, call it seven, Amazon properties over the last two months. So Amazon just released season three. Uh, July 15th, so very recently. And and the reason I use that metric as an example is because that's, uh, you know, that's just a general purpose, watch TV, movies, you know, documentaries on this platform. Um, it's now also, or season one is on Netflix. It's also on Peacock, all three seasons. Um, and then around the world, it's been translated thus far into over 50 languages Dubbed in uh, season one was dubbed into 11 languages. Uh, by the end of this year, we'll have all three seasons dubbed into 50 languages. And we, um, we have, uh, we've delivered the show to at least 150 million households worldwide at this point. Um, and, and those are just numbers we can count. We don't have access to Amazon's numbers and, you know, but where we can get the metrics. Um, we add those up and, and the reach has been significant. So this is a show that has really kind of moved into a cultural moment. Um, and again, even though the central character of the show is Jesus Christ, um, this is, this is not a show, uh, just for Christians. You know, it is a Christian show, but it's, um, it's a historical drama. You know, you're living, uh, the first century AD with, The people that knew Jesus, the Romans, you know, Roman-occupied territory and his disciples, and it's the characters of these people being woven together the same way any great TV drama would be delivered to the market. That's what we do in this show. So it's become very compelling. We're super excited. We will deliver season four, the first of the year, and, and then we have three more seasons beyond that. Now, incredible, obviously, the, um, the journey that you've had you know, incredible entrepreneurial journey too. So imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, maybe to that moment where your dad sat you down and said, hey, you know, it's time to, uh, to get going and producing. And that was when the uh, engines, you know, for you turned, you know, on starting to figure out how to take care of yourself and how to really control your own future, you know, by building things. Imagine if you had the opportunity of really having a sit down with that younger Brad and being able to tell that younger Brad one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why given what you know now? Based on what I know now, I would say to that Brad, because in our younger years, we're, we're, we're dreamers extraordinary, at least I was. And I didn't understand the cost Of, of getting the job done. It was almost as if I could dream it, I could create it. So what I would say is surround yourself with smart people, smart defined as people who can complete you. If you think of yourself as the product generator, 
and you only have one component, let's call it the user interface. Like that's what I bring to the table. I, I'm the user interface. Well, think of all the other components and services that need to come to the table in order to provide a solution. Instead of thinking of your employees or your team members as just people to get the task done for you, think of them as your co-collaborators that are completing you. Um, so my leadership would be different. I would, I would no longer look at people as just objects, players on a chessboard to kind of put into play for my benefit. Instead, I would think of them as augmenters. I would say, I'm incomplete. I actually can't deliver to market a solution without having a, a super smart um, software architect who's got the capacity to translate what's in here, uh, in my user interface, so to speak, to services. And, and it, it's, it's easy. And of course, there's some great stories about young teams that have accomplished a lot of great things. But in, in my case, um, I was really fortunate to find some very seasoned mentors early in my career, people 20, 30 years older than me, um, who were open to the collaboration of a young 20-something. Uh, and, and then the kind of translation effort of taking practical business skills that they had, they didn't have kind of the emerging technology skills that I did, and find a happy medium. And that took time. I wasn't a very humble 20-something. I was a pretty arrogant, smarter-than-everybody kind of guy. So that message now to that 20-something would be to say, be humble, be teachable, um, and recognize you're incomplete and, and humble enough to gather people inclusively instead of objectively. So that would be number one. The other thing I would add is uh, don't hold on too tight. Um, some of my businesses, I feel like I held on too tight, um, meaning I felt like no one else could do this job as, it, as we were scaling. Um, and so I, I held on to role, position, and authority way too long. And it wasn't until my third or fourth company that I realized, you know, I'm actually a really great chairman of the board after I build a company, and they're really good operators. Um, and don't be afraid of the fact that you built it, and you might feel like it's yours, but remember, if you were fully augmented, it was a group of people who did it. And so maybe your new role is really different than leading the company. And I found great satisfaction when I realized that. I didn't have to hang on so tight. So maybe that's a, a counsel I'd give to a little later stage, Brad. But uh, those are the first two things that come to mind. I love it. So, Brad, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, is there any method to do so, social media, email? What, are you, what, 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 are you, what would you say to them? Yeah, I would just I'll give you my email because I'm an older guy who doesn't spend a lot of time on social media, just frankly, for time's sake. I have social media accounts and handles, but if you reach out to me there, it's going to be a while before I reply. So just brad at thechosen.tv. Um, and feel free to reach out if I can bless your life or uh, offer any perspective. Love to be helpful. Easy enough. Well, Brad, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. It's been great to be with you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help 
whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.